a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A special General Conference edition of A Woman's View. Today, Amanda previews the much-anticipated book, Insights from a Prophet's Life. Her conversation with author Sherry Dew is brought to you by Deseret Book. Here's Amanda Dixon on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. What a treat it is this week to have Sherry Dew with me in studio. It's always good to see you, Hi, Sherry. It's so great to be with you. But never more so than uh, when we get a chance to talk about this book, which I've already had a chance to read. And I had a hard time putting it down. It was an amazing, approachable covering of this extraordinary man's life, President Nelson. And I don't know where to begin because there are so many different stories that I want you to share. But I loved this phrase that you said. One of President Nelson's favorite phrases is that the Lord uses the unlikely to accomplish the impossible. And that that is a great description in many ways of his life. Tell me more about that. Well, he's used that phrase a number of times in speaking to different groups, and he always looks back at himself and and then will reflect on different experiences he has had and will explain why he looks at it that way. So here's a good reason, and here's one good sequence from his life that uh, epitomizes that statement. He had just been called to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Now, he's been a world-famous heart surgeon, right? All these years. And he is called suddenly to full-time church service. He's been in the quorum uh, about a year and a half, and President uh, Ezra Taft Benson becomes president of the church. And the very first temple meeting, uh, the first presidency in Quorum of the Twelve, typically meet on Thursdays in, in the Assault Lake Temple. And the first meeting with this new president of the church, the new first presidency, and Quorum of the Twelve, after President Benson had become president of the church, President Benson comes in and he starts to hand out new assignments for the members of the Twelve. And he goes around, and, and Elder Nelson was, was quite junior in the Quorum at the time, right? So President Benson goes all around the circle and he gives everybody a new assignment. He comes to Elder Nelson. Now, this is 1985. This is way before the Berlin Wall comes down. It's way before uh, uh, Reagan says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's way before all of that. And President Benson comes around to Elder Nelson and says, um, okay, Elder Nelson, I want you to, to open all of the countries in Europe for the teaching of the gospel. So get official recognition for the church in all of these, particularly Eastern European countries. And President Nelson says, looking back at that, he says, I'm thinking to myself, I'm sitting next to Dallin Oaks. Pick a, him! A, yeah, a, 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 a truly a world-famous attorney. He says, don't you think he would know more about opening countries than I would? But he didn't say that, but it did run through his mind. 
Because that includes Russia and uh, Romania and Bulgaria, Bulgaria and, and Poland and Czechoslovakia. So it's an enormous, it's, huge in fact, undertaking. In fact, more of more of you, uh, more of uh, Europe was not recognized. The church was not recognized in more of Europe than was. So you look at the map and you go back and see all the countries where the church was not recognized and therefore really couldn't really operate. Yeah, it's just this huge mass of land. So he starts off on the process and starts going from country to country. I mean, again and again, I can't tell you how many times he flew to a country thinking he had an appointment with maybe the minister of religion or some official. And we get there and they say, no, we're not going to meet with you today. Maybe, maybe in two days, Mm -hmm. maybe in three days. Maybe not. Maybe I'm the wrong person. And every kind of disheartening experience you can imagine. And uh, over and over, I think he made something like 23 or 24 trips to Russia in about a four-year period of time. It gives you the an idea of the amount of time he was spending on an airplane, right? And going in and out of meetings and going back and forth to Washington, D.C. to try to meet with diplomats and at embassies and with ambassadors and so forth. But one thing after another started to happen, and little by little, this person would connect him to another person, or a certain thing would happen that would open a little door that would lead to maybe a little bit bigger door. And, and literally, by about 1990, uh, almost every country in Eastern Europe had granted the church official recognition. And I think he... I'm forgetting, I'm sorry, it was either 1990 or 1991 when he and Elder Oaks went and reported back to President Benson and said, okay, we have official recognition in all these countries. So he says, look, I was so unlikely. But I will say this, there's more than one time when the fact that he had been a heart surgeon opened a door Mm -hmm. because an official had a wife who needed a major surgery and needed to needed some kind of advice. So there were different times when actually his medical background so disarmed the people he was talking with that it actually opened a door. I remember you're talking in the book about when he was trying to open these countries and he would sometimes ask the person he was meeting with, let's let's forget about religion for a moment. How can I serve you? Mm-hmm. How can I serve you? And I, I can't remember which country it was where the, the problem was, you know, they had orphanages mm-hmm. or they had alcoholism Romania, or yeah. Romania. And he would just say... How, how can, can I help? serve you? Yes. How yeah. can how can we help? So repeatedly, that was the thing. Well, what are you struggling with, and how can we help? And they would look at him askance, and sort of as though, well, what can this um, this American religious man do? But then when they would say, well, we have a problem with alcoholism, or or we have way too many orphans, and we don't have enough parents, or whatever the issue was. In one in one place, it was we need help drafting a new constitution. We're we're our country is in upheaval and we need help actually drafting some new documents and in each case he was able to say well we could help we could send some people to help we'd be happy to help and that did open doors yeah how can we help how can we help isn't that something i i it seems to me that that was a theme in his life how can we help and that was one of my takeaways from your book sherry was i want to to i want to approach people and situations with that on my mind. How can I help? Instead of going into situations with, how can you help me? Mm-hmm. I want to go or into- what s- can you do for me? Or what can you do for me? Yeah. How can I benefit from this? Or how can this be quid pro quo? I want mm-hmm. to go into the situation with, 
how can I help you? you? You taught me that from focusing on that in this book, and I thank you for that. You know, it's it's interesting because I, I'm just passing along what I've – one of the things I've learned from him. I mean, when we started trying to figure out what should this book be because a, an official biography had already been written and published about 15 years ago by Elder Spencer Condy, a very important biography, a very good biography, but it it left out the last 15 years of his life. So there was that issue. And um, and so when we tried to figure out, well, what could this be, the more I looked at episodes in his life, it just felt to me as though there are so many insights from things he's learned or from things we can learn from him. And one of them, one of those things, and there are many, but one of them is definitely there is a fundamentally gracious nature about him. Mm-hmm. He cares about others. He cares about their well-being. He's the I, I could tell you story after story, and some of them that I've either witnessed myself or experienced myself, about his fundamentally generous, gracious nature. And I think the fact that he was a healer by trade um, gave him a natural instinct that when he's in these countries where they don't want to have a thing to do with him, that his natural reaction was, well, before I leave, can we help? I think we could probably help, but tell me what you're struggling Mm. with. My special guest on this conference Sunday is Sherry Dew. The book is Insights from a Prophet's Life, Russell M. Nelson. We'll take a brief break and be back in just a moment. Stay with us. Today's special general conference edition of A Woman's View is brought to you by Deseret Book. Here's Amanda Dixon on KSL News Radio. It is such a treat for me to have Sherry Dew in studio talking about this wonderful new book that I enjoyed on so many different levels. And I have to say this, Sherry, I loved the pictures in this book. The book is Insights from a Prophet's Life, Russell M. Nelson. I loved all of the pictures, but my favorite one is the one of President Nelson on the swing. How old is he in that picture? (laughs) Let's see. His wife, Sister Wendy Nelson, took that shot, I'm going to guess, uh, four years ago. So 90. He's 90 years old. And he is swinging like a second grader on that swing. So here's the funny thing. She got him that swing for his birthday. And I'm trying to remember which birthday. It might have been his 90th because she just thought he just needs a little fun in his life. And he loved it. And by the way, she did too. (laughs) (laughs) Now, can we talk a little bit about the two of them? Of course. Because their coming together is an amazing story. And they came together in a very spiritual way. Would you mind sharing that? So um, I'm going to refer to Sister Nelson as Wendy because she's a dear friend. Yes. Um, Wendy and I were actually traveling in Europe. And we were in Italy. We'd been in Rome. We went to Florence. We got to Florence. We had allowed several days in Florence. We loved it. But but we were done with Florence before our, our itinerary said we were done. And so we said, well, we've got an extra day. What if we leave Florence one day early? What should we do? And we said, oh, we've never we've never taken that uh, train up over the Alps to Zurich, which was our next stop. And so we said, let's let's go get one of those. Let's let's get tickets to one of those trains and found out we could. We quickly packed. We went down to the train station where we're, um, we bought the tickets. We're standing there looking. I'm standing there looking at that big leaderboard thing that says all the tracks and all the trains. And, of course, it's in Italian. So I'm trying to figure out, okay, which is our track to Zurich? And I hear from somebody from behind me say, Sister Do, can I help you? So we're at the Florence train station. Someone recognizes me from my service in the Relief Society, I'm sure. 
And I turned around. There's this darling young girl who had served a mission in Florence. I said, actually, you could. Can you help me find our right track? Well, Wendy's off somewhere. I don't know where she is. She's roaming somewhere. And I met this girl. Turns out she was on the way to Rome. Turns out that they were going to create the first stake ever in Rome. So this is the spring of 2005. And I said, oh, that's amazing. I wish we could go. That's like historic. The first stake in Rome. And then it dawned on me, and she said, Elder Nelson is going to be there creating the stake. And it dawned on me, he was probably traveling with the area president, who was Elder Harold Hillam, with whom I had served when I was in the Relief Society Presidency. And I thought, I'll bet you Elder Hillam was with him. And I said to this young girl, will you, would you mind taking a note? Would you have the courage to walk up to the stand in this new state conference and hand this general authority a note? And she said, sure. So I reached in my bag, pulled out a note, wrote him a little note to Elder and Sister Hillam, handed it to her. And she started to walk off, and I said, oh, wait a minute. I guess I should probably send a note to Elder Nelson, too. And uh, so, I, yes, I'll give one to Elder Nelson. So I pull out, write a note. And by now, Wendy has suddenly reappeared. What are you doing? Oh, I'm writing a note to Elder Nelson. This this girl introduced her. She's off on the way to that to Rome to that conference. So Wendy said, she says she, she insists she does not remember this. I remember it as clear as day. She said, well, put my name on it, too. So I wrote this note. In fact, there's a picture of the note in the book. I signed my name and hers. Her name is in, signed in my handwriting. <laughs> and give it to the girl, and off she goes. And Wendy and I said, do you think she'll actually have the courage to go deliver those notes? Well, we'll never know. Except we did. We did. So turns out that uh, Elder Nelson had lost his first wife, Dancel. So he was traveling alone to Europe. He had said to his secretary before he left Salt Lake City, go over to Desert Book and buy me a couple things to read on the, on the way. She had brought back a couple books, one of which was a book by Wendy Watson called Rock Solid Relationships. And that's what he had read on the way to Europe. So when this, this young girl walked up to the stand and handed him a note in that state conference and he opened it and saw this note from Sherry Dew, didn't care about that, and Wendy Watson... He had a very profound spiritual experience that basically said, um, hmm, I better follow up on that. And when he, he brought that note back to the United States with him, he took it to the temple. He prayed about it, and he knew he just had the feeling that when it was time for him to consider remarrying, that he needed to meet this woman. So I told her before everybody left for Rome, and and we all left for Rome for the dedication of the temple just a few weeks ago, I said, okay, think about it. Rome was sort of a connecting point for you, too. So he he did, of course, at a, an appropriate time, reach out to Wendy, and they started to see each other, and it ended up in marriage. But it started at the Florence train station. What an amazing story. And the blending of their lives. I mean, here, Wendy had never been, Sister Nelson had not mm-hmm. been married before, and he had a family of 200. <laughs> right. How did that you know, it's um, we we talk about this in the book actually that they both knew very clearly that they were to marry, and uh, but he, but he's a fair amount older than she is. He has a large family and a wonderful family, by the way, who welcomed her with they were wonderful and and I think she's been wonderful to them too. She loves them and has cared about them. And um, but 
I wouldn't want to say, and we certainly didn't say in the book, that that was easy, that it took a little work. I told her before she got married, I said, well, you're not just marrying a man with a large family. You're sort of marrying the church because she had been a very successful, very accomplished uh, professional in her field as a marriage and family therapist and uh, done untold good in helping counsel with uh, probably several thousand families during her career, not to mention train up doctoral students so they could go help families and relationships. Uh, but suddenly that part of her life was done, and she was uh, carrying on as the wife of an apostle, and that's just a transition. And it was quite a transition, I think, for both of them. So when I look back, um, watching my dear friend go through this, I would simply say that what I saw was two really wonderful people, principled people, have to dig in deep and work to make their marriage hum. And they did. But it wasn't as though it was sprinkled with pixie dust from from the first month or the first, you know, whatever. They had to work at it. And I, we, you know, I sat back when we were working on this and I said, you know, Wendy, we we ought to talk about that. Are you comfortable talking about the fact that it took some work in the beginning? And um, And she was. And then, and I said, how do you think President Nelson will feel about that? Well, let's, why don't you write it and let's see. And, you know, he didn't change a word oh, that's beautiful. of that part. It'll save marriages to just say, you know, actually, marriage takes some work. I love that. Another brief break, and we'll be back. When we come back, will you share that story of the heart surgery on Spencer W. Kimball? Because bet, that's the most extraordinary story, and I can't tell it as well as you do, I know. Uh, my special guest this week, Sherry Dew. The book is Insights from a Prophet's Life, Russell M. Nelson. Back in a moment. Today's special General Conference edition of A Woman's View is brought to you by Deseret Book. Here's Amanda Dixon on KSL News Radio. This extraordinary book is Insights from a Prophet's Life, Russell M. Nelson. My special guest this Sunday is Sherry Dew. And Sherry, I enjoyed so many different parts of the book for different reasons, but I think if I had to pick my absolute favorite, it would be the story of uh, then, is it Elder Nelson then when he performs the surgery? On he wasn't even wasn't, Elder Nelson. It was, Dr. it was Dr. Nelson. Dr. Nelson. Dr. Nelson performs the surgery on Spencer W. Kimball and doesn't recommend the surgery. But please, you tell the story. Okay, I will do. But can I go back and say one other oh, thing about, about President Nelson and Wendy? Yes. She would probably be happy if I said something that I've heard her say many times, and that is... Um, and now we're just wild about each other. Yes. Right? Yes. yes. I, and I really love that. I think that's a lovely, it just shows lovely growth, doesn't it? Yes. And growth in a relationship. Okay. Yes. The operation on then, it was Dr. Nelson, world famous heart surgeon, mm-hmm. um, pioneering heart surgeon, and then Elder Spencer W. Kimball, whose health had, who had had a lot of different uh, health challenges, but but got to the point where he had serious problem with his heart. And um, uh, President Nelson tells about the meeting where um, Elder Kimball and his wife, Sister Camilla Kimball, were there with his doctor, Dr. Ernest Wilkinson, and then his surgeon, Dr. Russell Nelson. And they were meeting with Harold B. Lee, who was President Harold B. Lee, a member of the First Presidency. So they go into this meeting and... Dr. Wilkinson says, 
you know, here's the problem. Uh, Elder Kimball actually has two problems with his heart. And then he turns it over to the heart surgeon to talk about it. And Dr. Nelson says, yes, he describes these two um, heart problems. And then he basically says, listen, we have no experience operating in a man of this age with a who's in heart failure. We know we can probably fix one of those things. Uh, maybe we could fix both of them, but we have no experience doing this serious and invasive heart surgery on a man this age. I do not recommend the surgery. Elder, Elder Kimball says to President Lee, see, this is the, it's time for me to go. It's time for me to move aside and make room for another younger man to be in the quorum. And by President Nelson's description, he says, President Lee stood up and, and kind of slammed his hands down on the desk and said, Spencer, you are not to die. And at that, in an instant, in, in an act of sheer faith and respect for his leader, he said, well, okay, I'll have the surgery then. So now Dr. Nelson, who's just said, I don't advise this. We, we don't think we can save his life. He's sitting back saying, oh, I'm in a I'm in such a fix now. I've just told them no, and he's now declared that he's going to have the surgery. So they go into the surgery. He, Dr. Nelson, was deeply prayerful, and and not only that, but did everything he knew professionally to prepare to figure out how am I going to do this surgery, worried just sick about it. Uh, as they go into the operating room, he still wonders exactly how this is going to work, but they proceeded and did this surgery, and he said, you know, it's one of those rare times when everything was perfect. He said there wasn't a dropped stitch, there wasn't a dropped implement, there wasn't a moment. Of the thousands of decisions you're making in an intricate procedure and series of procedures, there wasn't one mistake. He said, it's like I pitched a perfect game. And he said when they hooked everything back up, his heart, Elder Kimball's heart just he said it was just a powerful heart, and it just—it was just so strong. And then, as he's stitching him up, he has a very clear impression that this man is become, going to become president of the church. And that didn't make any sense because ahead of him, in line of seniority, was President Harold B. Lee, who was years his junior and much healthier. Not very much longer uh, later, I should say, President Joseph Fielding Smith died. Uh, Harold B. Lee becomes president of the church, and then he's only president of the church for about a year and a half. And so there are some moments, he, he um, President Nelson, I think, would, would say it this way or something like this. He would say, you know, after he became president of the church, I realized why, I'd had, why I had been blessed and helped to perform such a perfect surgery, because a perfect operation, because... The Lord needed him, mm-hmm. and he needed to live for yet a number of additional years. And many of those years, uh, Elder Kimball and then President Kimball's heart and his health was improved for a period of time. And, and then, of course, uh, then he began to decline. But, yeah, it was a one of those striking moments for the young Dr. Nelson in the operating room. He has th- these moments of peace in the middle of extraordinarily difficult circumstances mm-hmm. that are 
captivating, sort of mind-blowing mm-hmm. to me as a regular human. <laughs> as I'm reading about, I, I know that his life was in danger, not just during that plane incident, but that time that he's at the, he's there with Sister Nelson, I think, mm-hmm. is he not? Mozambique. Mozambique. Mm-hmm. And that peace comes over him. Would you share that with the, the audience? They were in the mission home in Maputo, which is the capital of Mozambique. And... Um, they were there with the mission president and his wife, uh, Blair and Cindy Packard, and they were there with uh, Elder and Sister Parmley. Elder Parmley was the area president in that area, and they're enjoying a, a, a meal that evening before they had other obligations. And in burst uh, several individuals with uh, automatic weapons. And, you know, it's interesting. It was a traumatic event because when you look at the security report and you look at all of the firsthand accounts they can't even quite agree on if there were three intruders or four. It's a little bit unclear. But then Elder Nelson got kicked to the ground. Now, at the time, he would have been in his late 80s, and this he wouldn't give up all of the things that the robbers wanted, and this robber took a, a running, kind of a run at him and kicked him in the face with his boot, knocked him to the ground. They walk around to the uh, side of the table where uh, Wendy was sitting and started trying to abduct her basically. And it's the mission president's wife who was the heroine. She managed to break away, break into the backyard. One of the robbers followed her out, threw her down, broke her arms, broken arm, created some other injuries as well. Somehow she got back into the house or the robber may have drug her back into the house. And then she broke free again and eventually was able to run down the road in front of their home, which was on a street where there were other embassies. And she shouted, uh, robber, robber in Portuguese. That's what they speak in Mo- Mozamb- Mozambique. But both Elder Nelson and, and Wendy talk about a feeling of complete peace. It's that peace that passeth understanding that we see described in the New Testament uh, by Paul and others. And Elder Nelson says it this way. He says, I thought as this robber pointed a gun at his head, he said, well, this is going to be interesting. I'll soon be on the other side of the veil. So he thought there were some moments there where he thought this was it for him. And Wendy just felt peaceful, even as this robber, one of the other robbers, is trying to pull her out of her chair. And um, that was absolutely a remarkable sequence of events. Uh, Clearly, they were not to die. They... um, you have this heroic activity on the part of the mission president's wife, and um, their lives were spared. But clearly the Lord was watching over them that day in such a demonstrable way. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about, um, just in our last segment, a little bit about some of the extraordinary things that President Nelson has done just in these last few years. I don't even know which of the many we should focus on. What comes to my mind, though, Sherry, is that speech he gave in Spanish when he told Mm. the interpreter, thank you so much, but if it's all right, I'd like to speak in the native tongue. Mm -hmm. Just Just a few more minutes with Sherry Dew back in a moment. Don't go away. Today's special General Conference edition of A Woman's View is brought to you by Deseret Book. Here's Amanda Dixon on KSL News Radio. 
What a treat it is to have Sherry Dew here with me on this conference Sunday talking about her extraordinary book, Insights from a Prophet's Life, Russell M. Nelson. And so much has happened during the time that he's been the prophet of the church. I think about that moment when he spoke. Where was he when he spoke in, in um, Spanish? The, fir- the first time I saw it, although I think it also happened in the Caribbean, so that may have been the first time when he was either in Puerto Rico or the Dominican Republic oh. where he actually dismissed his interpreter. And people in the crowd yeah. just started to weep. They started to weep. I had, I saw it. I was part of the media team helping with the coverage, um, of his trip to South America at the end, uh, last October. So I saw it for myself in, in Lima and in Bolivia and in, uh, uh Paraguay and in, uh, concept several places. What was it like? That first time in Lima, which is the first time I'd seen it, and he was in a large arena when he started out in English and he had his translator right by him, but he didn't go very far before he dismissed him. And he just said, if it would be okay, I'd like to speak in your native tongue. And then he starts in speaking Spanish. And I mean, there was a, an audible gasp and just... It, it, think of the profound feeling of respect that he's communicating mm-hmm. to say, I want to communicate with you in your language. And not even just in, to Spanish. I mean, he goes around the world learning a little bit of the language, does he not? He knows. He, I think he has a gift for language. There's no question. He has a fantastic ear. He plays the piano by ear in a way that's astonishing. So he has a great ear, and then he has this remarkable intellect. You put that together, and he's studied. I think you could go look at the files in his office, and he's got files where he's studied a number of different languages. So he can speak some Mandarin. He can speak some Russian. He can. Uh, he's. I think he's studied several Eastern European languages. He can absolutely speak Spanish. He can speak some Portuguese. Um, I'm not uh, Italian. I'm not sure. So he, he is, he does have this profound respect to just want to say, I want to communicate with you the best I can. And I've watched the impact on the audience and it's just, it's just overwhelming. You can feel a rush go through the audience of just, oh, he's talking to us. Mm-hmm. Every, it's beautiful. I, I read in your book. And the stories I am overwhelmed with are ones that are filled so much with humility, not just the ones about leadership, Sherry, but the ones that are filled with humility, like that story uh, about the family that was angry with him mm-hmm. going back to a surgery oh. he had performed, what, 30, 40 years before? Mm-hmm. I'm going to get teary thinking about this one because the, the, he, what, you please share this story. He, there were, he, he operated um, sequentially on two sisters a year or two apart. In both cases, they had basically, and it was a long time ago, oh, so yeah. they were still learning how to do certain procedures. But some of them, even today, I think one of the daughters today, he thinks he could have saved to, with today's procedures, but the, one of the others, no. There were congenital problems and so forth. But sequentially, both of these little girls died, and he was he was devastated. He describes going home and literally crying all night. And his wife, Dancel, was there with him all night as he just sobbed about seeing the devastation in this family. I've just now lost two little girls. And he felt res- 
you know, well, I, I couldn't do anything. I, I did my best, but it wasn't enough. And a uh, great part of the story that I absolutely love is the next morning when, because he's proclaiming this whole night, I, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't put any more families through this. And Dancel, in a, in a kind of love, but wisdom, but also, come on, come on, boy, almost, said, are you done crying yet? You need to, you need to go back to the lab. You need to, you're, if you stop now, then somebody else is going to have to catch up to where you already are and lives will be lost. You need to go figure out what you don't know how to do. And he just, so he lost these girls and this family was mad at him for years and it broke his heart. Mm -hmm. They blamed him for losing the girls. It caused their alienation from the church and he felt horrible about that. He reached out a number of times through the years to try to see if they could reconcile. They wouldn't have anything to do with it. And then one night, um, this is when he's president of Quorum the Twelve. He has a dream, and the dream is very vivid, and he feels like those little girls have come to talk to him, and they said, Brother Nelson, can you help us? We're not sealed to anybody. Can you help us? And he started thinking, okay, I've got to help those little girls. Maybe there is something I can do for them, for their eternal lives. If I couldn't save their mortal lives, can I do something for their eternal lives? And one thing led to another, and... The father, now quite a lot of older, and the father's son were willing to meet with him. And and through a, a, a major process, there was a great reconciliation to the point that President Nelson performed, was able to seal this man to his deceased wife and him to his children. And it's just one of the great um, examples of his loving kindness uh, and I, there are an almost endless number of accounts but yes that one healed he finally healed some hearts and reading that uh, Sherry forgive my emotion um, I just thought that you never give up on forgiving you never give up it's never always up. worth it our, our time is nearly gone I, I just want to thank you for for writing the book for sharing these and you know, one of my favorites is, is the, um, the epilogue that you would share that personal moment. We have just a, like a minute and a half that sharing your, your personal experience that you had at the Bountiful Temple. Should I, should I ask you to share it or should sure. I not? Would no, you, I can. Would you? I had the privilege of a few months ago of uh, doing some ceilings, we would say. Um, in other words, doing proxy work for uh, couples who have passed on and, uh, sealing them as husband and wife. And we did quite a few that day. And so I was there with my nephew, just returned from his mission, and another couple, and then President Sister Nelson. And so because we did so many, I heard that beautiful ordinance over and over and over again. And certain words stuck out to me as particularly meaningful and beautiful that you might not notice when you just hear it once and go to one ceiling, but when you hear it over and over again. So at the end of this ceiling session that lasted a couple of hours, I I said to the president, since we're here in the temple, could I ask you a couple of questions about some of these words that have just stood out to me? What does such and such mean? Well, Sherry, I don't know exactly, but here's what I do know that the Lord has more blessings in store for his children than we can possibly understand. And that it's all real. This is all real and it's all true. 
and that he's opened up every blessing he has for us if we so desire to seek after them. And I just thought, think about this remarkable humility but profound faith, and both of them are characteristic of Russell M. Nelson. Sherry, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Amanda.